for filling in. Gallon, thank you very much. Okay. First Peter chapter one, I appreciate it. And you guys enjoy having him in the pulpit. What an awesome opportunity. And uh, that's fantastic. We will have him back. Uh, again, if you're new with us, thank you very much for coming. We're glad that you're here. Okay, we'll leave that one there. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Excuse me. We're not going to be Ecclesiastes. To Luke chapter 18. I don't know where that came from. Ecclesiastes just popped into my head. I want to talk tonight a little bit about your life and eternity. Life is short. Eternity is long. We are here today. We are gone tomorrow. James chapter 4 verse 14 says that your life is but a vapor. It's just a mist on a cold night that you breathe out. It's here and it's gone. Uh, And yet God put eternity into each one of our hearts. It doesn't take much thinking, laying in bed at night, uh, much time alone as you work through the processes of what's going on in your mind and your life and your day to recognize there is more to this life than Chick-fil-A and school and work, right? It doesn't take much to feel inside that you were made for something more, something bigger, something grander. That's why in Ecclesiastes, that's where it came from, chapter 3, verse 11, it says that God has also set eternity in their heart. It doesn't take much for you to recognize that you are built and born for another world, something beyond the life that is here, that is around us, that we see every day. Each of us has an immortal and undying soul that is bound for an eternal destiny with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. That's why Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed for man to die once. That is car accident. That is cancer. That is uh, a really bad paper cut. I don't know, something. It's appointed for man to die once. And then it says, after this comes judgment. Each of us will stand before God to give an account for our actions. And so life is important. Eternity is important as well. We must be ready for that. And yet we find ourselves so distracted by the things around us. Uh, Like in one of my favorite movies, the movie Up, with the dog whose name is Doug. And he always says, squirrel, right? He's just so distracted with other things. We have a hard time keeping our minds focused on what is truly important. Is that not the case for you? You wake up in the morning because your alarm goes off. You struggle to hit it. Or like me, you snoozed for over an hour this morning, which was glorious. You may or may not make your way to the gym, right? And then you head off to your day, either work or school or whatever other thing is going on. There's so many things that are pulling for your attention, whether it's a relationship or whether it's your your, uh, schoolwork or whether it's trying to make a living um, or whether it's just keeping everybody around you happy. Doesn't that seem like the life sometimes you're just, the plates are spinning and you're trying to take care of your parents over here and your siblings over there and your, your boss over here and your coworkers over there and you just, I just want to keep everything happy. And too often we put our souls on the back burner, don't we? We get, we get caught up with this and we forget about that. Is that good? Good use of uh, the English language. Oh, I want to bring you back tonight to the concept of eternity. And that you were created for more than this life. And whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, the simple reality is that God has given you this time on earth. And then he's given you eternity on the back end of that. 
And what we do here, as Maximus says, will echo through eternity. It's really biblical, even though that movie is not. Uh, But you were created for more than this life, and God has promised a reward and a treasure, a future hope that is greater than what this world could ever offer. And it's not about tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. We're talking about 100 years from now. We're talking about 1,000 years from now. We're talking about 10,000 years from now. The treasure that God gives that is eternal, immortal, undying, reserved in heaven for you. So with all of that said, I want to take you to a story in the Bible that addresses this very issue of eternity, of this life in comparison with the next life. It's a very timely word, I think, for each of us because life is busy and yet these days are short and our time here is numbered. And I want you to take a look and I want to take a look at our hearts and the difference between time and eternity. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. You already there? Did I already tell you that? Luke chapter 18, cool. This is the story of a man that we call the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. It's, we see his story in all three of the synoptic gospels, Mark 10, Matthew 19, and also here in Luke chapter 18. Uh, and we're gonna stick mostly to Luke 18 tonight just to keep us in one place, but the stories are very similar across. And there's a reason why this is in all three of the gospels outside of John, and it's because it bears repeating, and it bears thinking about, and it bears meditation for each of our lives. And I think this man will speak to us even from the grave tonight. Luke 18, verse 18. It starts this way. A ruler questioned him. It is Jesus Christ. A ruler questioned Jesus saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And really that sets off the question, doesn't it? That's the point of this. He's coming to Jesus. He wants to know how he can be saved how he can go to heaven, how he can escape his sins, how he can have a relationship with God. He wants to know how he can inherit eternal life. Look at 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, interesting phrase, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It's an amazing story. I love it. I spent time at Hume Lake preaching this over four messages and I've taken it and condensed it all down into one so you get the benefit of last weekend without actually being there. Um, So let's look at this. Let me tell you about this man. Verse 23 tells us that this man is rich. He's rich. In fact, 23 says he was extremely rich. Matthew 19, 22 says that he owned much property. And we've got the general concept of people who are wealthy. Right, you think of a boxer like Floyd Mayweather who last year made $285 million. One year boxer. Michael Jordan, net worth, his empire, $1.7 billion. 
LeBron James, a, a measly $440 million, okay? <laughs> Whatever. Tom Brady, $180 million. Tom Brady, that's it. His wife, $380 million. It's crazy. <laughs> How about Bryce Harper? You guys see that contract? He just signed, what was it? Is it uh, 13 years? Is that what it was? 13 years, $330 million, no trade option, guaranteed. That's a lot of money. Okay, it reminds me of um, different, but Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook is worth like around $55 billion. Then if you, if you extrapolate that over the course of his entire life, that dude, it equals, he has made $6 million per day since the day he was born. <laughs> That's crazy. So anyway, this guy, maybe he's not that rich, but this guy in the story was, verse 23, extremely wealthy. We also know that he's a young man. Uh, you, you don't see that in Luke 18, but you do see that in Matthew 19, 22. And how does a young man become wealthy? I mean, he could have robbed a bank, I suppose. He could have found a hidden treasure. More than likely, he married into wealth. He was born into wealth. Or he did very well for himself as a young man. So however you look at it, it doesn't really matter. We don't know. But what we do know is that this young man was rich. Okay, and many young men in this room would like to be rich because what richness, what wealth says to you is freedom. It says, I can have what I want. It says, I don't have to work. Work, there it is. <laughs> it means my life is set and I can do what I want, right? That's what money gets you. And, and for, the, for the Jews back in Jesus' day, they believed that money and wealth were associated with the divine favor of God. So when they saw somebody who was rich, the natural assumption, what they all believed was that God has blessed this individual with money. He has favor with God. So here's a young guy that has a lot of money, all right? Favored by God. He can do what he wants. And finally, we see the third thing about him is that he is a ruler. We call him the rich young ruler because that's what it says in verse 18. Uh, we would say it differently. He, this guy has power. This, this man has influence. This guy is respected, Back then, there was no separation of church and state. And so this man who's high up in the Jewish religious system, like Nicodemus, is also high up in the political um, government as well because they're all connected together. So here's this guy. He's part of the governing council. Um, he's got money and he's young. He's got it all together. He's accomplished. He's comfortable. He's respected. And he's done all of it before the age of 30. Pretty good. And yet, watch something is missing. Something is missing. How do we know something's missing? Because he comes with a question to Jesus. He comes knowing that at least one thing for sure is that he is not headed where? He is not headed to heaven. He knows that confidently. How do we know this? Because look at 18. He comes with the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Somewhere inside of his heart, there is something that's not right and he recognizes in the end he is not going to make it. He is going to fall short. He's looking at his life through the lens of eternity and he says that even with all that it has to offer and all that he is, he knows it's not enough. So we can say a few positive things about him. He comes to the right person, doesn't he? If you're going to ask a question about eternity, Jesus is the right man to talk to. He is God in the flesh. He has all wisdom. He is the savior, right? He has power to save. Jesus has the answers to life's greatest questions. He doesn't go to Oprah. 
He doesn't go to, to Dr. Phil. He doesn't go into the largest section of Barnes & Noble. Do you ever go in there anymore? We still have a bookstore here in town and a library. But the largest section, self-help in the bookstore. He didn't go there. He comes to the one place where he can get the correct answer, and that's to Jesus. So let's get him, give him credit for that. Secondly, he came eagerly. He came with the right um, amount of force. Mark 10, 17 says that he came running up to Jesus. He comes running. He is, he is eager to know. He has urgency in his approach. And we could say thoroughly he comes with the right attitude because in Mark 10, it says that he came to Jesus and he knelt before him. <clears throat> he knelt before him. While he was a person of authority, a person of power, he knew his place in the presence of the Son of God and he gets on his knees to ask his question. He comes in humility. And so he comes with this question, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I'm living in fear. I'm living in doubt. I'm full of uncertainty. I have no assurance of my salvation. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. Something's wrong. Can you help? That's the question. I need help. And Jesus, in the way that he so often does, doesn't just directly answer this man's question with here are the three steps, Romans Road, and off you go. Jesus helps this man. He, he delivers a pathway with which all of us, including this man, must, um, must cope with and must walk through if we will inherit eternal life. Four things he gives him that you need to know, that this man needed to know to inherit eternal life. And to keep it simple tonight, in terms of the outline, I just broke this down one word for each point, okay? So it's basically this. We're going to look at God, we're going to look at sin, we're going to look at gospel, and we're going to look at reward. All right, those are the four points of our outline to give us some structure as we work, work through this. So let's begin with the first word. Number one in our big, crazy, complex outline is the word God. Is the word God. Verse 19, Jesus answers this man's question and he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, like I said, it, Jesus doesn't just answer the question, right? Uh, that doesn't really answer the question. How can I hear eternal life? Um, don't call me good. Only God is good. Well, have you ever wondered why Jesus goes there? Because it's not what I'm expecting. I'm expecting Jesus to say, turn from your sin, believe in me, right? Uh, and be saved. Boom, done, move on to the next guy. Isn't that what we would do? This guy comes asking, I want to become a Christian. Okay, well, let's pray to God right now. It's not what Jesus says. He reaches deeper. And he, he does this because he understands this man isn't seeing things properly. Most importantly, get this, he does not see God rightly. Okay? That's the biggest issue. You call me good, but there is no one good except God. Here it is in a nutshell. Your understanding of God is faulty. You cannot understand eternal life without understanding who God is. So what does he say? God alone is good. And he's establishing point number one, who God is. God has a moral standard of goodness that is far above ours, that separates him from us. That moral standard, we would use another word for it, we would call it holiness. This is not talking about the goodness of God. It is talking about his moral perfection, but it's talking about the fact that in his goodness, he is different. He always does what's right, what is good, what is morally perfect. He is holy. The Bible says his eyes are too pure to look upon evil in Habakkuk chapter one. 
He is total and complete moral perfection, without fault. He does not conform to some holy standard. God is the holy standard. So much does he hate sin that he created an eternal lake of fire for the devil and his angels after they fell. So much does he hate sin that he banished Adam and Eve from the garden after they sinned. So much does God hate sin that he sent a flood of water to cover the earth. That he sent down fire to devour Sodom and Gomorrah. So much does he hate sin that God poured out his wrath on his own beloved son when he took our sin in his body on the cross. The simple reality is that God is holy. And 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside thee. And if we're talking about all of God's attributes, you think about an attribute in your mind of who God is. The one that most uniquely describes him, the one that binds all other attributes together, is the concept of holiness. When the angels cry out and worship to one another, they do not say eternal, 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 right? Or mighty, mighty, mighty. They declare God to be holy, holy, holy. He is three times holy. To give it emphasis, as if to say he is holy, he is holier, he is holiest. It is to underscore to the power of three. Steve Lawson said it this way. Sovereignty is the scepter in his hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Truth drips from his lips. Love fills his heart. Omnipotence is in his arms and in his hands. Omniscience is his eyes and his ears. But the crown jewel of all of the attributes of God is his holiness. And so before Jesus can answer the question about how you can inherit eternal life, he establishes who God is. Because you cannot have eternal life unless you understand and know the one who offers eternal life. Does that make sense? So that's what God established. That's what he establishes. Secondly, number two, he establishes what sin is. So if God is number one, sin is number two. In verse 20, Jesus gives this man a test. He recites the second half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, That is those that deal with our horizontal relationships. Look at verse 20. He says this, you know the commandments. Of course, this man knew the commandments. Uh, He's a ruler in the synagogue. He grew up a good Jewish boy. Of course, he knows the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. In short, Jesus lays out the law, doesn't he? He has given us God and his holiness, and now he lays out God's standard in the law. So it's not enough that God just said, I'm holy, you need to be like me. He said, I'm holy, and here is my standard. He laid it out in the form of the commandments. And in order to go to heaven, Jesus is saying, you want to know how to inherit eternal eternal life? Keep my commandments. So he gives this man a five-question test. We'll take the test along with him tonight, okay? Five questions. You ready? Here they are. Question number one, to see if you can earn eternal life on your own. Ready? Question number one, are you a sexual sinner? Are you a sexual sinner? In verse 20, he says, do not commit adultery. Now we know from Matthew 5, 28, do you want to turn there? Yeah, you guys should turn there. Look at Matthew 5, 28 to see what this is really talking about. And the question he wants this man to understand and to know is whether or not he has kept the law perfectly. 
So in 528, Matthew 528, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look at that phrase, everyone who looks um, with a, at a woman with lust. I think we can replace that everyone who looks at a man with lust. It begins with a look. Lust begins with a look. It's not an inadvertent casual glance. This is a purposeful, slow, premeditated look that carries the idea of desire along with it. It has planning. It has premeditation. This is going to certain websites. This is clicking the channel across a certain range where you know you're gonna see something that will incite your flesh. This is following certain people on Instagram. This is doing certain things with your boyfriend or girlfriend that are driven by lust. But lust is a bottomless pit that is never satisfied. Proverbs 27, 20 says, death and destruction are never satisfied, neither are the eyes of a man. As soon as the object of lust is attained, lust wants something more. It never has enough. For some of you, sexual sin is your greatest struggle. It is your Goliath, the sin that you cannot overcome. The, the thing that keeps you from giving your all to Christ, it hangs over you even in this room like a dark cloud that blocks the light of the sun, making your heart cold and distant. And you need to deal with it. You need to deal with it because this, like with this man, is holding him back from finding eternal life. Guys, you think it's okay for you to satisfy your lust by looking at women online? <clears throat> that it's okay to experiment sexually with your girlfriend when God has called you to perfect holiness? You think it's okay for you to slake your lust on hundreds, if not thousands of online images and that you'll be content someday with one woman in the context of marriage? It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. Ladies, you think it's okay that you give your body to him now? If you give him what he wants, then maybe he'll be happy and he'll stay? that you'll have the security and the protection and the love that you so desperately crave. It's a trap. Don't sacrifice your body to satisfy your need for love. I've said the saying before, let me say it again. Girls give sex for love and guys give love for sex. It is a battle of the sexes and both sides are working against the middle to try to get what they want. But in all of that, there is sexual sin. And you need to make no mistake because there's a war waging and you must be vigilant to keep watch over your soul. God has given clear instruction that lust and everything that comes out of lust, whether that's self-gratification or fooling around or sex outside of marriage or anything that has to do with the baseball diamond and different things like that, whatever you want to say, wherever you want to go, anything outside of perfect holiness is sin. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 90 verse 8, Listen to this, you have placed our sins before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The blazing glory of God looks into your heart and sees your sin. So question number one, he says to this man, you've understood that God is holy. Now recognize that you are a sexual sinner. How do you do on the first question of the test? Anybody pass? Anybody good enough to get to heaven based on their works? Let's look at question number two. Huh, just gets better. Are you a murderer? He says there in verse 20, do not murder. Most people in this room would answer a quick no. Not a murderer. But again, in Matthew 5, Jesus says in verse 21, 
You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. That means don't kill somebody physically. And whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Just anger alone makes you the same guilt as murdering somebody. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is serious. It's a serious deal. If you call your brother a bad name, if you make fun of your brother in a way that's derogatory, if you have anger towards your brother, all those things, he goes from the court to the Supreme Court to hell. He's ratcheting up the punishment for simple sins of the heart and of the mouth. That's why in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, but I tell you that every careless word, think about this for a minute, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. You think your good's gonna outweigh your bad? Good luck. Every careless word. How many careless words have you spoken in your life? But Jesus here is equating anger and murder together. Hatred and murder together. In 1 John 3, 15, it, it very simply summarizing this, it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Wow. So anger, bitterness, hatred, revenge, all lurk in our hearts. So question number two, are you a murderer? You ever kill anybody? Yes, you have. I would, I would argue, but you can answer that for yourself. Number three, are you a thief? Verse 20, he says, do not steal. I won't spend a ton of time here. Could be physical possessions. Could be online content. Could be credit for something that you didn't do. All of these things are stealing. Have you ever stolen something? Question number four, are you a liar? Verse 20 says, do not bear false witness. That bearing a false witness refers to being in court, being on the test, you know, on the stand. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and you commit perjury or you lie? Um, false witness is to be uh, is an issue of honesty. It means lying under oath. Now, each one of us has shaded the truth. Maybe you've told a little fib over here or a white lie over there or you've broken a promise, exaggerated, only told half the truth, flattered somebody, or even a bold-faced lie. Unless you think that lying is not that big of a deal, Proverbs 12.22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. It's a big deal to the God who gave you communication and gave you language that you would use that, not James 3 says, in a way that would honor him. Out of the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. These things should not be, he says, and that's what we do. And then he goes on to the question number five, do you honor your parents? Do you honor your parents? To honor is to assign value, to respect, to attribute a high status to someone. Uh, So do you value your parents? Do you respect them? Now, the reason that Jesus doesn't say, do you obey your parents, is why? Because this guy is old enough. He's out of the house on his own. And so there's a point in the life of every child where the, the call to obey your parents no longer applies. Does that make sense? Most of you still live at home. Most of you are still dependent on your parents. You're in this kind of tweener stage between dependence and independence. It's becoming more and more awkward, right? Because you want to do what you want to do. Some of you have been away to school and you've been back and your parents are like, what time are you going to be home? And you're like, I was gone for two years. <laughs> Nobody ever asked me anything. Like, well, why now? But, right, but you, we struggle against that because, or you struggle against that now because you don't want to be told what to do. You want your independence. You want your freedom. And that's the idea of obedience in, in a growing adult child. Very difficult. 
but I'm gonna say for this room, obey and honor, which means if you're still under your parents' roof, still dependent upon them for financial and other needs, then you do have a, a measure where you need to obey them as if obeying the Lord. <clears throat> what never changes is when God calls you to honor your parents. So for example, I know I don't look it, <laughs> but I'm 42. <laughs> I don't need to obey my mom anymore. When she calls me like last week and she said, honey, I know you're going away on a trip. I really think you need to start getting packing. I'm going with my dad to New Zealand in a couple weeks. I go, mom, I love you. I have three other trips before I go on that trip, okay? I'm not packing for this trip yet. I don't have to obey you in this. I love you, thank you for caring. I don't need to obey. But I said it in a way that I honored my mom. And I, I paid deference to my mom because she is my mother and God has called me to respect and honor her. And this whole stage is difficult. This man was in a spot where Jesus is saying you need to honor your parents, right? Um, and so I wanna ask you, do you assign honor to your mom and your dad? Whether they're saved or unsaved, whether they're a good parent or a bad parent, there's no conditions in the Bible. The Bible says, honor them because I have put them in authority over you. I have given them to you. God didn't make a mistake with your parents. Even if they're tough, even if they're difficult, still not an error by the hand of a sovereign and good God. Do you allow your parents, here's, here's the flip side, do you allow your parents to enjoy you? Psalm 127 verse three says, children are a gift of the Lord. Are you a gift to your parents? Or are they like, where's the receipt? I gotta send this gift back, right? It says, how blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. What would your parents say about you? Are you their greatest blessing? Are you a gift from God to them? Or is that, are you the, the trial in the home? When you go out the door, they're like, oh, it's so much more peaceful because he's gone. I'm so glad she moved out and everything's great now. So the basic idea, you can think about that in your own heart, but Jesus is giving this man a test. Having established the holiness of God, having established that only God is good, he now comes and exposes this man's sin. He gives him the law. And the purpose of the law, it's a tutor to bring us to Christ. What does it do? The law was given to show us what? To show us sin and that we've fallen short. And he says that to Jesus. I, I call it the form of a test, right? Are you a sexual sinner? Are you a murderer? Are you a thief, a liar? Do you honor your parents? If the answer is yes to even one of those, James 2 says, for whoever keeps the entire law but stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, James 2.10. And this is where we get to the reality of our desperate need. A holy God and a sinful person cannot come together, right? So look down at verse 25. You're in Luke 18. Go back to Luke 18. Look at verse 25. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's an impossible task. 26, they said, then who can be saved? Understand, the rich people were looked at as having God's blessing. If the rich guy who is the ruler, who's done everything right his whole life, can't be saved, then who can be, they said. And 27, Jesus answers, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. How does a holy God and a sinful man come together? That's where we hit point number three. We'll call it gospel in verse 21. We'll call it gospel. Look back there at verse 21. The rich young ruler, <clears throat> after Jesus gives him the five question test, 
says all these things. You see it there? I have kept from my what? From my youth. Wait, what? Did he really just say that? This is, this is crazy. This is one of those, what? Like, it should jump off the page. I know it doesn't, but if you study this enough, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus just gave him the law. There is nobody perfect. Not even one, the Old Testament tells us, and Romans 3 tells us. But this man says, I'm good enough since I was a boy. And really what this is saying is since I understood the difference between right and wrong, I have always chosen good. He has manicured his external appearance, his external efforts, and he believes, listen carefully, that he has done enough good to get to heaven on his own. This is the equivalent of today's, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. Some of you in this room think I'm a good person. I'll make it to heaven because I do good things. If you compare me to the girls sleeping around at work, if you compare me to the dude who's doing drugs, as I drive up the freeway and see the guys sitting on the side of the road, I, I like to think of myself as better than them. In fact, I'm better than a lot of people. And the problem that we have is that we compare ourselves to other sinful human beings. Instead of what Jesus is trying to establish, which is look who God is and look at who, how sinful you are and that's the standard, right? But that's not what this guy sees. What he needs to recognize, there's an infinite gap between a holy God and a sinful human being. There is no ladder you can climb to God. There is no amount of money that you can pay. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you know. You can't be good enough. Not in this lifetime, not in a thousand lifetimes. That's why Jesus Christ took on human flesh, God in human flesh, and he lived perfectly according to the law. When he got baptized... It says he did it to fulfill the law. He did it to fulfill the custom. He did it because that's what all Jewish men did. He did it to walk in the perfection of what was supposed to happen with a human being. And he never sinned. He never fell short. He lived perfectly. Questions one through five, guess what? Flew through that test with flying colors. No sin ever entered him. He was perfect. And so when he went to the cross, it was as if God said, He treated Jesus as if he had lived our sinful life. And he treated us as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. So he put his perfect life aside. He laid down that cross and God looked at him and treated him as if he was a sexual sinner, as if he was a murderer, as if he was a thief, a liar, and he had no respect for his parents. He treated him as a sinner and he poured out his wrath upon him, wrath that was stored up um, for us, the wrath of hell basically, Jesus paid on that cross. No wonder the father turned away. No wonder the sky went dark and the earth shook and the rocks literally split open because the creator was dying and creation was being undone. Jesus drank every last drop of the wrath of God on the behalf of those who would believe. On the flip side, he he took our sin in his body. He gave us his perfect life, his righteousness. So when God looks at us, instead of exercising judgment, He looks at us and sees the perfection of Christ. He sees that we lived perfectly, that we answered one through five perfectly. That's the gospel message, right? Is that God has mercy to sinners and gives forgiveness to those who need rest for their souls. And we come in faith, trusting in Christ's work, believing in him, and that is where salvation comes from. It's all about his work, not ours. So this man, however, didn't get it. 
because he says, wait a second, wait a second, I'm good enough. I've done it all. In other words, I don't need a savior. I got this on my own. And Jesus says in verse 22, one more time, after hearing him and listening, he responds and says, one thing you still lack. Isn't that interesting? He pins it down to one simple reality in this man's heart. What is that? What is that thing that he lacked? And Jesus says it this way, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. Really? Have you ever thought about this verse and somebody's come to you and said, rich people are bad. You shouldn't have money. Give your money away. Sell, live on the street. Go into some kind of socialistic environment. That's what Jesus wants. See right here, money is the root of all evil, which the Bible doesn't say. But he's saying to this man, you need to liquidate everything. Your property, your possessions, your money, all you've worked for, all you've amassed, get rid of it. Well, why? What's Jesus doing? He's not, I'm telling you, he's not saying you need to pay your way into heaven. He's not saying you need to live in abject poverty. That's not his point. You can't miss this. What he's driving at is something deeper. He is now moved from commandments six through 10 that were horizontal to commandments one through five that are all vertical. He is going after and pegging the issue in this man's heart, which let me, let me start. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall have no other, no other gods before me. He has gone after the root cause of this man's issue. What is holding him back from heaven is that he loves something else more than he loves God. Jesus has made this very clear. What was it for him? It was what? It was his money. It was his money. And while it was money for him, it may be different for you. Because money is not the only treasure, right? I, I love Captain Jack Sparrow who says that all treasure is not silver and gold, is it, mate? <laughs> I love the fact that he had a compass and that compass pointed toward what your heart wants most. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's holding out a divine compass, as it were, and he's showing the thing to which this man's heart gravitates, the thing that he longs for and loves the most. And it was something that was separating him from God. Ezekiel 14 calls these things idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. Where does the compass of your heart point? What is the thing that you value most? Think about it. What is the idol of your heart? Is it a relationship? Is it physical um, uh, gratification and sex and pleasure? Is it acceptance? Is it possessions? Is it comfort? Is it achievement? Is it some kind of success? Idols take all different shapes and sizes. <clears throat> what do you love most? What Jesus is saying here <clears throat> is that you can't have the best of both worlds. You don't come to Jesus and say, all these things I've amassed here, all my good efforts, all the things that I hold dear, I'm gonna add Jesus into that. That's not how Christianity works. Jesus comes as a conquering king uh, and he claims and he commands that you give up everything to follow him. That's what he's saying. You cannot have two gods. Matthew 6, 24, right? No one can serve two masters. Further, you hold to one and despise the other or you love one and hate the other. And he says, you cannot serve God and wealth. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You need to let it go. This thing is dragging your soul to hell and it's not worth it. For this man, it was money. I don't know what it is for you. Short-lived pleasures. These things cost Achan his life, that gold that he hid in his tent. Esau sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup, right? Samson lost his eyes. Ananias and Sapphira, their lives. Judas betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And Demas, it says, loved this present world, and so he deserted and left the faith. These are all examples in Scripture of people that saw the here and now and grabbed a hold of it. And they weren't able to look towards eternity and say life is longer. It's bigger than this. And Jesus is saying, leave it, dump it. It's all going to the, to the, to the trash pile anyway. And at the end of verse 22, he says, look, look down your Bibles, look at those last three words. He says, sell it all. And he says, come, follow me. The same command that he has given throughout the Bible. This is the same call that he has always given to all human beings. There is always a choice. There is always to leave everything to follow Jesus. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua said to the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Same thing, follow me. In um, 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah standing on the top of Mount Carmel says this, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. It's the same command that Jesus gave to his disciples when he saw them by the seashore and he said, come, leave your nets and follow me. And it's the same command that he's given to each one of us, right? The bell has been rung, the call has gone out, and many here have answered. Like Abraham, we followed him. We said, I'll leave it and I'll follow Christ. Like Moses, we said, I'll turn from the passing pleasures of sin and I'll find my eternal reward in Jesus. Like the three young men in Babylon, we've chosen not to bow down. Like Esther, who went before the king and she said, if I perish, I perish, but I will follow him. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he calls this man to do. Total surrender. It is not Jesus and. It is not Jesus plus. It is leave your idol, scrap everything you hold dear and find your treasure in Christ. He wants no competitors, but he offers eternal life. And so for this man, the offer comes here, which is let go of everything. Or we can say it this way. You trade nothing for everything. A few gold pieces, a couple of video games, beat up car, a wardrobe full of clothes that are gonna be out of style. What are you really holding on to? Jesus says, let go of this nothing and I will give you everything. And that brings us to our final word. It is the word reward. The word reward. It's a phrase in verse 22 that we haven't looked at quite yet. I skipped it just now. He says, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor and look at that phrase and you shall have treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. This is not an empty promise. This is not just something that that, uh, pastors tell people to keep them out of trouble. Jesus is promising a treasure. He's promising a reward. He's promising something more. (coughs) We can't see it here, but but it is reality, right? And it comes in two forms. There's an eternal reward. Eternal life comes in two places. One is life that goes on forever. It's It's a quantity of life. It means we live forever, never die. Psalm 1611 says, you will make known to me the path of life. 
In your fullness, excuse me, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Those are appreciated and understood when we are with him in heaven. That's the long-term future. But there's a more tangible, closer reward. There's something else Jesus offers, and he offers it to you right now, today and tomorrow and every day, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is knowing God. That is the, the, the quality of life. Not just about the quantity that it goes forever, but the quality of life is that you can know Christ now, that sin can be removed, that joy can be replaced, that love and peace and hope and fulfillment and purpose and all that makes life grand on an eternal scale is given to us as we follow him. It's tangible. Galatians 2.20, think of it in this light. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but listen to this phrase. But Christ lives in me. Have you ever thought about that? In the Old Testament, in the time of Christ, they had a big temple. Here's God's presence. Temple was torn down. Jesus was resurrected. The veil was torn. The spirit indwells believers. Guess what? His temple is your body. He comes and he dwells inside of you. That's amazing. Your life changes because Jesus is here Because Jesus doesn't, uh, it's not you just keep walking and doing the same old things. No, Christ comes in as an invading king and he changes you. That's the high point of the Christian life. It is not a boring religion. It's a relationship with a person. You forget that. I know I do too. We read our Bibles, flip our four pages, do our thing, close the book, move on. No, this is a relationship. It's not knowing facts about God. It is about knowing God. You know the verse, I love this, John 17, three. Jesus says, this is eternal life. What, that you'll live forever? That you'll be on a cloud playing a harp, right? No, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, listen, here it is, is knowing God, experiencing God having an experimental, experiential relationship with him. Does it sound very good to you? Then you need to understand what it says more. Having that kind of intimate relationship with the king is awesome. That's why in Matthew 13, verse 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was buried in the field and a man found it and hid it again and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Why? because there is great joy in knowing Christ. This guy can't believe how lucky he is. He gets the amazing treasure. He sells everything. He jettisons all of his stuff because he wants this one thing. And that's what Christianity is. The greatest treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it the clearest, I think, in the Bible, Philippians 3.8, right? He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Huh. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, I give it all up and count it rubbish that I might gain Christ. That's the treasure. So we've seen God, we've seen sin, we've seen the gospel, and we've seen the reward. Notice how the story ends. Because we're used to happy endings, right? But this one doesn't end so happy. I laughed because I, as I preached this at Hume, I, I reworked a couple of different movies. And I said, think about 
the movie Finding Nemo. We're so conditioned to things ending well, right? And, and this Hollywood ties everything in a nice little bow for us. What if at the end of Finding Nemo, as Nemo's coming out in that net full of fish, the very last scene shows the fisherman slicing his head off and dropping it back into the water, and the last thing we see is his father shocked as the severed head floats down to the bottom. We don't, why not? Why not? Because it doesn't sell. We want, we want happily ever after type endings, right? What if Pinocchio ended with Geppetto chopping him into a bunch of firewood and throwing him into the fire to keep warm at night? Like, I mean, that could be the ending, but that doesn't sell. And the Bible is so good because God doesn't always just say everything works out perfectly. And if there's one thing we learn from this passage, listen to this. It's that not everyone goes to heaven. Wow. Because it says in verse 23, look at it. But when he had heard these things, he became very, what's the word? Very sad, for he was extremely rich. That idea of sadness, the Greek there for sad, is an intense sorrow and grieving. Same word used when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, is in the garden, and he's sweating drops of blood, and it says his soul was grieved to the point of death. Same word. This man is experiencing an intense sorrow. Why? Because when confronted with the decision for the treasure on earth or the treasure in heaven, he was unwilling to relinquish his hold on the treasure on this earth and he doubled down and he walked away sad. And I tell you, he speaks to us from the grave tonight. Ultimately, he went away rejecting Christ. But it's not sad for everyone because look at verse 28. I love this. Peter's standing there. Peter, always the opportunist. He says, Lord, behold, we've left our homes. We sold everything, gave up the job, right? Walked away from our houses. We've been walking around. And look, we followed you. And he says to them in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one. That's an absolute statement. There is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. What a promise. Here are these men saying, we've, we've, we've left it all. We're, we're here on the carpet giving everything. What about us? The guarantee of eternal life. Super cool, isn't it? So there is a choice. I want to encourage you to work through this tonight as you consider the realities of eternity in your own heart. Let's pray and we'll be finished.